0: Welcome to Commerce Growth Lab, the community for commerce strategies and tactics. I'm your host, Franco Variano. This season, the podcast focuses on speaking with some of the most interesting and successful trendsetters, entrepreneurs, and leaders in commerce. Together, we'll dive into their unique stories, experience their highs and lows, and gain from their insights and experiences as they continue to shape this industry.
1: I don't believe that e-commerce is about selling products to people. I find it's more about creating a way that people can find what they need conveniently so that they can buy it.
0: Today, we're chatting with Pat Waller, the director of e-commerce for Otter Products, makers of the OtterBox. Pat joins us to share his story, how he got into commerce, what it's been like growing the Otter Products brand in Asia, how he thinks about e-commerce and customer experience, and a ton more. So let's get started. Hey, Pat. Thanks so much for being on the show today.
1: Thanks for having me, Franco. It's a a privilege and a pleasure.
0: No, the privilege is all mine. It's awesome to get to catch up with you and share your story and insights with our community. So before we get into what you're currently up to today, can you tell us a bit more about yourself? Where are you from and what did you study? So I'm from
1: Ottawa, Canada. I was raised there by a British father who is an academic and criminologist and a Western Canadian mom who is an activist in environmental law and diversity and I always thought about moving into how could I make positive change in the world and really got into more of the business function after doing a gap year uh, between high school and university. And I went out and I lived in Spain for a year. Um, and that really opened my eyes about job opportunities in the world and living abroad in different cultures. And from there, I went back to Canada and I started a business degree at the University of Guelph, actually specializing in hospitality and tourism at the time, really enjoying you know, the tourism industry and seeing if that would be a, a successful career path. For me. And through that work, I actually, in about midway through university, I started running a bar in Montreal. And running that bar in Montreal kind of started off my, I guess, awareness for marketing and specifically for online marketing as an opportunity. And so I pursued that further, trying to learn more and more about it, which at the time I felt like actually universities weren't doing the best job at teaching marketing in general or kind of the passion part of marketing. It was more of the theory and the the standard aspects of marketing, such as the four Ps and not enough about a creative aspect of it or the opportunity that marketing presents with a lot of organizations. And I I kind of followed that and uh, started applying for more corporate marketing communications jobs out of Ottawa. And I, you know, I, I guess I don't know how much you want me to go into my, my career from the start, but from there, I applied for these positions. I got a, an opportunity to go work for UPS out in Europe through an organization called Isaac, who does internships for postgraduate individuals. And I got a position out there looking after our marketing communications as a you know junior entry level position, focusing on the London 2012 Olympics, PGA European Tour, and actually quite a bit of Microsoft SharePoint internships communication work. And that that was kind of the start of my corporate marketing career. And with UPS, I worked really hard, followed opportunities, and ended up getting transferred to London. I lived in London, England for about two years working on the London 2012 Olympics, which was super exciting, doing every aspect of marketing from public relations to digital marketing to events to ambassador sponsorship, customer hospitality. So it kind of got to to broaden my understanding of marketing and how it actually works in the real world, not just in textbooks from school. And from there, my wife, uh, actually girlfriend at the time, she got an opportunity to transfer with her company. So we did one transfer mine. We said, let's do the next one with hers. And we both transferred out to Hong Kong. For her, it was going to be a two-year placement in Hong Kong. I left my job in London and moved out with her and took the chance to go and experience that. And doing that, I ended up starting doing quite a bit of digital marketing consulting based on my experience previous that in Europe. And I found a company called Otterbox out there. And I've been working for Otterbox for about four and a half
0: years now. Absolutely. That's incredible. What a cool story. So focusing in on Otterbox and the parent company called Otter Products, which has several different brands in its portfolio, can you tell us a bit more about each of these brands and how you created the opportunity to join the company once you did get to Hong Kong?
1: So I found Otterbox through networking. I don't know how much you want to talk about networking
0: on your show, but when I moved to Hong
1: Kong, I I, I kind of took on the challenge to say, okay, how am I going to find myself a job? What are some routines that I can build myself that are going to kind of create opportunities. And one of them was, let's take the first 30 days. We really, well, maybe we spent like the first week settling in. My wife went straight to work. I was getting to know, understand the neighborhood, do all the life admin things you need to do. The first week you move to any new home or any <laughs> new city or country. And I said, okay, over the next 30 days, I am going to make the biggest effort possible to meet somebody every single day. Whether I knew them beforehand or not, I would schedule coffees, lunches, after-work drinks, dinners, after-dinner drinks with one person every day for 30 days and Doing that, I actually met quite a few different people and through three degrees of separations of meeting a person, and then they introduced me to another. And then into another, I met a guy who was the account director for Ogilvy doing public relations for this company called Otterbox. And he said that one of his clients is looking for a person with good marketing experience to join their team. So I ended up having a a cup of coffee with the vice president of Asia-Pacific Otter Products, OtterBox, which as you mentioned, manages OtterBox and LifeProof. And I didn't know anything about them. And I don't know if you'd heard of them before. They're fairly popular in North America, but in Asia, they weren't that popular. In Europe, they weren't that popular at the time either. So for me, it was a new brand. I did your standard Google search on who is OtterBox or what is OtterBox. And uh, I found all sorts of really incredible videos about how OtterBox gives back to the community. And How they it was a, an entrepreneurial story of a, of a guy in a garage named Kurt Richardson, who started the company with many, many attempts of a successful product and failing for about 17 years or trying really hard to make it uh, a sustainable business for 17 years. And then finally creating a dry box for people that want to go canoeing or camping and keep their things dry. They can put it in this otter box uh, and it'll keep their stuff dry on their adventure. that. That company kind of evolved into a huge nursery giant today. Um, really the pioneer of protective cases for um, handheld devices or smartphones or tablets. We even did computers for a while. So the company, once it started making them for actually the Palm Pilot originally, it started growing quite quickly. And then it moved into BlackBerry as BlackBerry smartphones were becoming super popular. And once the iPhone, the original iPhone 3G launched, OtterBox launched a, a case for it that was a protective case so you could take your iPhone wherever you wanted, just like you could um, with the dry box days. And the company became one of the fastest growing companies in the US for eight consecutive years. And throughout that growth, you know, they did all sorts of different things to expand, uh, one opening an office in Europe, opening an office in Hong Kong, but also uh, acquiring other brands in the industry such as LifeProof and Rapsol to you know see how can they extend their product portfolio to really meet all of the needs of consumers today with their technology technology. So I started working for them in, in Hong Kong, and I started off as a product marketing manager after that coffee with the vice president. And from there, I was kind of joining them in the, mid, in the middle of their hyper growth. So I joined the team, and there was probably about seven marketing people on the team. And within a year, we went through a couple uh, marketing directors, and I got promoted, I think, at around the age of 28 to be the the new vice president of marketing for Asia Pacific. And we actually grew the business significantly, triple digit growth, as well as I grew my team from joining it as one of the seven to managing 16 people, the marketing department, which included a creative team, um, a South Asian marketing team, a North Asian marketing team, and an e commerce team. Yeah, it was it was quite the ride and it still is. So I still work with them today. And I transferred with them last June back to my homeland to Canada, where I support our global team, the offices in Colorado, and I support our uh, global head office team, uh, mostly focusing on our online business in the Americas, as well as an,
0: a retail expansion with the flagship store in Colorado. That's really cool. And I want to dive into all that even more, but just touching on what you've just mentioned in terms of supporting the global team with a focus specifically on e-commerce, can you tell us a bit more about what that involves for you? So we have two major websites, autobox.com and lifeproof.com. And they
1: are mostly focused on servicing consumers in the Americas. So from Canada all the way down to Brazil or Argentina. And the way that we've we expanded, you know, a fast-growing company, we tried different ways of expanding internationally, really with Asia being the first one. And we launched our own websites in Asia, which was on an ASP.net Microsoft platform and kind of followed, followed the opportunities. You know, Asia is, is a really big region. Uh, we were managing 15 countries, trying to translate everything into at least five languages. And from an e-commerce perspective, it was working really well. There are two different ways, I guess, you know, to define e-commerce for a lot of companies is your brand site and what you're doing as a direct-to-consumer channel where you're holding inventory and you're selling via a website that you're managing, and then as well distributing through a third party such as Tmall, Rakuten, Amazon eBay, Lazada, uh, a marketplace channel. So in Asia, we were finding success in both of them. So we were we were investing in both of them. And over the past year, what we've done is we've invested further into the brand sites. So the websites with that, the autobox.com or lifeproof.com for Asia. We did the same thing in Europe a few years before that. So right now, we actually have more of a global platform that all regions can use. And it creates all sorts of efficiencies on developing different functionality and features to improve on the e-commerce experience for people that visit the website. And I guess the simple way that I like to explain our online strategy is that there are two main levers in e-commerce that you can can use. Uh, One of them would be the marketing aspect of driving traffic to your websites. And then the other one would be Investing in the experience so that once the people have arrived to your website, you can offer the best experience possible for them to be able to conveniently buy or find whatever they need to be able to find on your websites. So those are the two areas that we invest in would be marketing, driving the traffic and building awareness to get people there and then experience investing in the store. To make sure that once people are there, they want to stay there, they're able to find what they want to find, and they're able to come back again and again to experience the
0: brand and the products. That makes sense. And so with all the various brands, products, and digital properties, how do you approach driving growth across all these different products? I mean, with a lot of hard
1: work, I guess is the easy answer, but it, it's managed with a good information technology team that's kind of maintaining and investing into the, the website and the experience part of it, as well as managing on a marketing team that's driving that, that awareness. When it comes to a lot of multi-brand companies... There's definitely areas of efficiencies where if you already have a brand on one web platform, to add another one to the web platform is not that big of a additional work. There's definitely additional work. So I don't think that it, it's as easy as once you do it once, it just automatically replicates on the other sites. But it definitely creates quite a bit of efficiencies. So that was something that as a company we did over the past few years with partnering with LifeProof. They were on a separate platform. We slowly moved them onto the same platform, similar things as I mentioned, with the regions, they were on different platforms. So we moved them into one platform so that you can build a lot of those efficiencies. And that's you know, one big main, main way of, of supporting it. There's also different sizes, you know, depending on the brand or the region, they might not need the same level of e-commerce support that you'd have for, say, a Canadian or American business. So you do need to make those kind of calculated assumptions on, okay, when should we do it? Do we need to invest into a new platform? Should they move on to the same platform? You know. Feed and and maintenance costs change depending on what platform you're on so really that's that's kind of what we looked at is is how can you how can you invest to make sure that you're offering a great consumer experience across the board with investing into the it platform that the websites hosted on and then as well figuring out the economies of scale when you're investing in digital marketing you know Google and facebook have done a great job at at uh, expanding internationally so probably five years ago it was a you know a different story with the amount of digital marketing channels who were. using Using specifically in Asia, and still I guess today in China, there are very different digital marketing tactics. You can still learn similar lessons or, or ways of optimizing your investment in those or your brand experience on them. But today, you know, Google and Facebook are a great partner of ours for expanding our brand awareness globally across all major markets. So with multiple brands or multiple sites, you are able to find uh, efficiencies through
0: working with partners to drive more brand awareness. Cool. And from an international marketing perspective, can you speak to some of the high-level tactical difference between more established markets and new markets, specifically with the goal of increasing e-commerce conversions? I think looking
1: at the consumer journey funnel is a is a great way to to review any kind of brand market share or I guess mature markets versus, you know, new new markets. If you look at your website as how many people are actually coming to it on a regular basis and and what are they doing once they come to the website, we have an incredible brand awareness and market share in the North American region where you're not really looking as much for how do you get more traffic to the website, you're really investing more in it. How do you make the most of the traffic that you have? So how do you make the most amount of visitors that are coming to your store get what they need conveniently and how they want to do it on your store? One analogy that I've been using internally quite a bit since I moved back to North America is really websites are 24-7 stores. And if you look at a lot of offline stores, sometimes it resonates better with people when they have events or parties. They'll send out, you know, tons of invitations to their event or party at the store or even your house for a birthday. And you are asking, say, a hundred people, a thousand people to come. You need to host those people once they arrive to your house or to your store. Our websites are doing that on an everyday basis. So they they're having a party every day. There are just people, you know, foot traffic is coming through the store constantly. So how do you make sure that once they arrive to the store, somebody is saying, hello, how are you? you know, what are you looking for? And that the people enjoy while they're in the store. And before they leave the store, you're able to ask them, did you get what you need? Do you still need help? There's a huge aspect to that on how can we, how can we invest more of that in a, in a mature market like North America, where you already have traffic? And then what would that balance be of an investment in experience versus traffic in a new market? where you know maybe you're not actually trying to invest as much in having the experience once they get to the store as strong as if it was a, a mature market. you're actually investing in how do you build more awareness? how do more people find out about your brand? how do you first get them coming into the store so that you can work with them on what's that consumer experience going to be for their local culture or market? I think those those have probably been the big differences and the and the marketing tactics have been from a funnel perspective in new markets you're doing a lot more top of the funnel awareness activations where you're really trying to build a certain level of word of mouth. And in more mature markets, you're focusing more on that experience element, which would be lower funnel, closer to the kind of purchase or conversion aspect, because you already have so many people coming in the funnel, you don't need to feed it as much as you would in a new market.
0: For sure. So you've mentioned customer experience a few times now. What insights or tactics can you share about how you've approached figuring out what the customer experience really needs to be?
1: So we do, we do a lot of different things. You know, I guess to summarize, I think the most powerful aspect of experience for a brand or, um, or a product is, from an e-commerce perspective, is looking at the service. So I'm a strong believer that e-commerce is offering a service to consumers so that they're able to find what they need faster or more conveniently. I don't believe that e-commerce is about selling products to people. I find it's more about creating a way that people can find what they need conveniently so that they can buy it. And I think when you look at websites in that way, it changes the way that you're looking at the consumer experience because you're, you're constantly looking at your website and saying, OK, we know people come in from this way, from this medium then what do they do and how can we make it easier for them to find whatever we believe they think they are looking for. And there are a lot of different ways you can do that through e-commerce attribution on you know, what did they search on Google. And based on what they searched on Google, there's a high chance that that's obviously what they're looking for on our website. So how do we make sure we get them to the right product page or the right content page for them to find out more on specifically what they're looking for? So experimenting with those kind of everyday tests where you're doing a user experience test whether it's an a b test so you're taking you know say a hundred thousand people and you're just you're you're shooting them through a a consumer journey from from awareness all the way to purchase and even post purchase. And actually, I have a lot to talk about post purchase. But first for the user experience, it's looking at, okay, so how do they get from that awareness to the purchase? And how do we help them throughout that experience? Um, And where do they go? And where do they drop off? And if they drop off there, what can we change so that they don't drop off there? And then once you've kind of fixed that, you'll notice that they'll probably drop off somewhere else. So constantly doing tests to say, Okay, let's do an A-B test. So it, they'll go down this path on the A and they'll go down that path, which will be very similar on the B, but we'll do one thing different. And comparing that data and seeing what is that difference. And a lot of the time, it's inconclusive that actually doing these differences that you know you might spend a lot of time talking about is the right thing and your intuition says it is the right thing. It actually might not have an impact on the overall numbers, or there might be something that you do really believe in and you try to do it and it has a negative impact. So then you go back to how you had it before. Um, And obviously the best ones are when it's a a positive impact and then you take it to the next level of testing and you expand it further and you review it and see if it continues to improve. And if it does really well, then you go and test it on your other brand or you go and test it on in another market. So it's this kind of idea of like always testing and trying to figure out what works and what doesn't work. And how do you share what you learned from each of those? So how do you complete kind of a learning loop every time so that you're sharing it and you're trying again and again and again? And a lot of the time what companies fall into is like what's worth testing, what's not worth testing. And I'm a firm believer in don't paralyze yourself through analysis of what's worth, what's not. Just make sure that you're always constantly testing and you'll find some pretty amazing golden nuggets as you do that. And you'll definitely improve overall in your consumer experience if you're doing that actively.
0: Definitely. I completely agree. Not just about leveraging the right tests to keep improving your entire business, but also about not getting paralyzed with more information and deciding what to do next. So in there, you also mentioned some post-purchase insights. Can you expand on that a little and where it fits into the entire marketing or e-commerce funnel?
1: It kind of goes back to your question about new markets and mature markets. When I was out in Asia, we've, we focused a lot on pre-purchase because we had a, a huge population of people that did not know about our brand. So you're doing a lot of marketing activities that are driving awareness. And they're coming down the same consumer journey funnel as they would anywhere, anywhere else It might be a little different, but, you know, you're going from awareness to consideration to purchase to advocacy. When I moved over to the U.S. and Canada and looking at the Americas a bit more where the brand awareness is really strong, it was amazing to see how well we're able to meet consumers' needs from the standard consumer journal, journey. And then we've actually prided ourselves, and we still do pride ourselves because it's amazing, on our customer service. And our customer service team... They mostly work on post-purchase activities. So they're working with consumers that have purchased a product and either don't know how to install it or don't like the way it looks on their phone or in their living room or decided that they want to exchange it or something happened and they they you know don't need the product anymore. How can we make that an important part of the customer journey? And, and we're already doing that. I think the big opportunity here is... How, from an e-commerce standpoint, can you also do that? So how can we make our website service customers that need support, that have questions or want to understand how to use something better or want to exchange it or want to upgrade it or want to share their story, whether it's reviews or testimonials? How do we take the same amount of effort in mature markets and say, we're doing all this exciting work for pre-purchase? Then you have purchase, which is also something you need to invest in significantly to optimize. And then there's a post-purchase funnel that if you can really do a great job of post-purchase, you can have somebody go from buying or using one of your products to then maybe using more than one of your products and diversifying across your product portfolio because they, they understand the brand and they understand more about the product. To then, if they're doing that, they actually end up doing more word of mouth and they start sharing it with more friends to how do you continue to support them further. And then they kind of become fan ambassadors or brand advocates. And looking at that post-purchase experience, I think is a huge opportunity for brands and companies today to say that they're more than just the product. They are consumer experience focused, and they want to make sure that people that do buy their product or use their product are able to use it in the way that it was intended to use or in the way that they really want to use it. So I I think there's an exciting thing there. There's quite a few articles out there on it these days. One person that I would recommend, who I think is is a really good thought leader. His humor might not be for everyone, but he's definitely a really smart guy. He has got really good experience in marketing, tech, and finance. His name's Scott Galloway, and he's a NYU Stern professor. He does weekly video releases or blogs, vlogs, however you want to call it. And he's talked a little bit about it, and I think he's done a good job explaining it and continuing to kind of research it. So that would probably be a good resource for anyone looking to learn more about that.
0: That's awesome. So obviously your experience with OtterBox is pretty unique given the size and international scope. If you were to give some advice to other e-commerce entrepreneurs who are just starting off or who have their own brands that they're trying to grow, what should they be focusing on? So, I'd, I'd probably go back
1: to the service element. So, think about e commerce as a service or digital as a service. I think if you look at like a lot of startups, that's what they've done. They've created a digital way of making things more convenient, whether it's Uber or Lyft on ride sharing for ordering a taxi or ordering your food, you know, Ritual, which is a cool Canadian company that made it easier for you to pick up food. You know, how do you, I guess, invest in? digital technology that's going to be able to offer a service. And I know there's tons of of great digital products out there and the app market and the gaming market are really big, but I really see if you already have a product or an idea and you're looking at an e-commerce expansion or it's your only channel and you're going to be a direct to consumer only play, how do you make sure that your e-commerce strategy is, is making it possible so that people can find out what they need to find out about your brand your products, your company mission, your customer service. So how can you how can you think about that when you're investing in your strategy? To say that you want to invest in something that makes it so that people can be able to find it. And then the you know the the other thing would just really be once once you have it up there and you and you have a store and you have people visiting is to really test, you know, as mentioned before. How do you make sure you're constantly testing and not being hard on yourself if things don't work? fail forward and optimize your success. So be optimistic on new ideas and be positive, enthusiastic, and kind of curious to understand if a test would impact anything or if adding a new feature would do it and make sure you stay objective and you put a business case together on what's the investment from time, resources, uh, financial resources, and what other kind of implications might a new feature have impact as far as logistics or customer service or finance? You know, a lot of these new features, they seem super simple, but
0: you got to do your due diligence on the research. That's very cool. So what's next for you and the Auto Products team in the coming months? So, you
1: know, 2018 is half over. <laughs> so I think 2018 has already happened and we have some really exciting things going on. I think as we move into 2019, you know, 2021 up to 2020, 2025, it's really you know, how do we continue doing what we're doing today? And be sure that we are evolving in the right direction, and that we're continuously moving to the next level. I think for for us, it's really is seeing like how how do you keep up with the digital trends today, um, or how do you lead new digital trends as far as business models go. So we'll be looking at some exciting projects on. How do we make it more convenient for our customers to get what they need? How do we make it more convenient for them to use our products? Uh, How do we make it more convenient for them to share feedback about our our products? And how can we maybe even turn those into business models? So we'll be looking at that quite a bit from an e-commerce perspective.
0: Awesome. And in terms of new products or community initiatives, I know the company has a few things happening. Anything there to mention or plug? Both of our brands, Autobox
1: and Lifeproof, have both expanded into new categories significantly over the past two years. And I don't know if you're aware of this or the listeners are, but Autobox started off as a dry box business, as we discussed earlier. It moved into protecting your technology and protecting smartphones. And we've actually moved back into more of that passion project of the family that founded AutoBox on how do we offer more products and services to enhance the experience of the everyday consumer wanting to use products outdoors or with their family. So we've launched coolers, So we've launched bear resistant. So these have been bear resistant coolers. Bears can't get them. And then we've invested into, so there's hard coolers, soft coolers, tumblers, a whole new line of outdoor products to really help it so that not just the outdoor enthusiast, but the everyday person can take these products out into the wild. And then LifeProof's been doing similar product expansion into waterproof, drop-proof speaker units. We just launched backpacks actually today on LifeProof.com. We're launching backpacks, which is really exciting. And these are new kind of versatile waterproof backpacks that you can take out whether you're commuting during the week, you know, on a rainy day biking to work or if you're climbing a mountain on the weekend. So we're we're really looking at how we can do that and the the company's mission overall is to grow to give. So our our mission is we grow to give and the founder has really made sure that that's a major part of uh, all employees Everyday business where we're looking at how can we grow the company and our product lines to offer more services to our customers, but also through that be able to give back to our local communities and communities abroad. So we have a foundation called Otter Cares that really believes in to make lasting change in the world, we need to invest in entrepreneurship and philanthropy education. So we have school programs that can download a kit. It's called Project Heart and it is kind of a a packaged kit that a teacher at an elementary school or high school or university is able to take some kind of standard 101 on entrepreneurship and philanthropy and be able to share that with their students um, to encourage them to to think beyond, I guess, the high school jobs, and I feel like that—that's that's kind of a reality in a lot of markets where they feel like success is you have to be one of these very professional kind of doctor, lawyer, engineers, accountants, and there's not enough emphasis on the entrepreneurs that open a coffee shop or a bakery or start a podcast or become a public relations manager or a marketing manager or an e-commerce manager. I feel like we don't we don't really talk about those jobs. And specifically with the digital revolution, we're not talking about a lot of these new digital jobs that are out there. I definitely didn't think of getting into e-commerce when I was in high school and even in university, it took after that to really find, you know, where do I see more opportunity and, and how do I get involved in that? So I always think that's a fun thing to think about is that there are a lot of other job options out there in the world that um, people aren't, aren't thinking about that could be a great fit for them.
0: Yeah, Absolutely. So we've covered a lot of ground in this episode. So do you have any final thoughts or words of advice to leave us with? When I think about
1: uh, you know passing on advice, I typically like to go back to curiosity. It's something that I always look for when I'm hiring new people is really evaluating what's the level of curiosity of a lot of people today and how do we foster curiosity in our communities? Because I think if you're curious... It intrinsically motivates you to jump on new opportunities, to fail forward and learn from your failures and not be so negative on the outcome of what you tried, but more learn about the experience. And so I I think, you know, my, my biggest advice would be for everyone to stay curious and especially as artificial intelligence (laughs) and the world becomes more digitized. How do you stay curious about all these new technologies? And you don't have to be an early adopter, but how do you still try to adopt, you know, new technology or at least adapt to new technology? I think you always need to have a certain level of curiosity. And for me, it's worked out very well personally, professionally. So. That, that's probably what I would pass on to people today is to stay curious.
0: Absolutely. I couldn't think of a better way to end the episode. Pat, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us today. It was amazing to have you on the show.
1: Thank you. Lovely chatting with you too. Have a good day.
0: Thanks for listening. Commerce Growth Lab is recorded and produced by me. There's no massive team behind it. And so I'd love your help in growing the show. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, tell a friend about the show, or share a link on social media. You can find out more about the show, our guests, and everything commerce-related by visiting our site at www.commercegrowthlab.com. Follow us on Twitter, at Com Growth Lab, that's com with two Ms, or join the community on Facebook, at Commerce Growth Lab. We couldn't do the show without your awesome support, so thanks for listening.